Father, we thank you for the rest that we have in you. We think about the work of what Christ has done, what he's accomplished, and him saying that it is finished. What, is that, what that means for us. The confidence, the hope, the contentment, the peace, the rest that those wonderful on that and provide for us, God. And we really want to, to meditate on that and think about that. We think about how it can be that what Christ has done has actually secured our salvation, our forgiveness. And when we think about that, Lord, we think about you and we think about your nature, as we will be learning about today. We're approaching a topic, Lord, of which we can never fully wrap our minds around. How can it be that God would come as a man and dwell among us, being in the womb, being born as a baby, growing up as a man, but yet always being divine. But yet that's what was necessary. Our salvation, the, the effectiveness of the work of Christ upon the cross depends upon Christ having and maintaining both of those natures perfectly. And we're just in awe and super thankful that, that he did and that he has and he continues to praise your name as we have just finished singing. Praise your name, God. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the regenerating and testifying, convicting work of the Spirit. All three, the triune God, fully at work in our salvation, our sanctifi sanctification and and our glorification too. We love you. We look to you now, Father, please be gracious enough to help us understand your eternal and divine word to such a degree that it would cause us to love you more and to grow and change in our, in our, uh, in who we are and in our sanctification. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I think... Um, I kind of gave away in my opening prayer there the task that's set before us today. And really, I was thinking of like encouraging everyone. I hope you brought your thinking caps today. And then it occurred to me, really, it doesn't matter what kind of thinking cap you have. There comes a point when you're considering the nature of Christ, his dual nature, right? His, he's 100% divine and God, in essence, never loses that. 100% man, and there comes a point in which no matter how often you think, how deeply you think upon this topic, we will never be able to fully comprehend what it is that um, Christ has done and, and who he is in his nature. But nevertheless, we want, that is what it is that we do want to explore today. And my prayer through this sermon, as it is through every single sermon, is that because of the word that is preached and the truth that we grasp through it to whatever degree the Lord allows that, and he opens up our eyes to understand the truth of, the, truth of his word, would draw our hearts to worship. Like, at the end of the day, when we see that Christ loses none of his divinity, even when he comes in his humanity, and yet both aspects need to be recognized, at the end of the day, we would be humbled and thankful and worship him 
um, completely for who he is, and that we would have a, a balanced understanding of who our Lord Jesus Christ is too, um, and, and being drawn to not only worship, but then also to heed all of his words and to be changed as he seeks to change us through the preaching of his word. And so today we're going to look at, as God would have us by his sovereignty, look at the dual nature of Christ, which I think is very appropriate and fitting as we come into the Christmas season when God divine becomes, comes in the flesh and comes in the form of a baby and a man. I mean, this is what we're, we're looking forward to. We're celebrating this season is this, this really this divine momentous and miraculous event. And so the Lord has us looking at that this morning in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We're going to cover two verses today. We've been moving at one verse a week. We're doubling our pace this week. We're going to get through verses 3 and 4. And the plan is to get through 5, 6, and 7 next week. So we'll, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, Lord willing. So um, just by way of recap here, so far we have discussed the Lord's servant. We've seen that in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He is drawing the attention to who he is as he quickly then sets up where he's going to be going and talking about his favorite topic, which should be our favorite topic, and that is God. So we've discussed the Lord's servant. Last week we discussed the God of promise from verse 2. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And so we talked about God as the God of promise. It's his gospel. It's his promise. They're his prophets. They're his Holy Scriptures. Paul was simply set apart to be a herald and apostle for that divine message, and he yet he always viewed himself as just being a servant of Christ. First Corinthians 4.1, Paul would say, how should all people view us? And talking about him and Paul and Barnabas and Cephas and, and all the others as simply servants of Christ. Like, just regard us as servants. He is the master. We're just servants. And so every believer um, is encouraged to view themselves in that same way. And so last week we looked at God, the God of promise, the God who drives all of this, the God who is accomplishing redemption. It is his promise. He put it in place. He's accomplishing it through his son, and it's to his son that we look this morning, the son, our Lord. And we want to consider um, the son's dual nature, his divine nature and his human nature. And then we want to look at the power that is his as both divine and human, and then to see how the scripture talks about that same divine power being at work in the lives of you and me. And to try and bring this home, this is, this is a sermon essentially on Christology as we look at what the theological term of the hypostatic union would be, the union of the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. 100%. It's not like one yielded to the other. He always was both of those completely, which is remarkable. But then what I think continues to be remarkable is that the power of Christ is said to then be at work in the life of the believer, which should really change the way that we view about, the way that we think about our, our struggles with sin our ability to put sin to death, 
um, all those things like that. And so I wanna, we want to eventually consider that this morning as well. Um, I would say that if you're into church history, uh, perhaps no other doctrine um, other than this, this joining together of the divine and the human nature of Christ that was attacked and defended uh, more in the first, um, no other doctrine was probably attacked and defended more often in the, especially within the first several centuries of the church. If you go back and you read what we would call the patristic area, the one, year 100 to 500, and the early church fathers mean this, the, do, the, the person of Christ and the Trinity were the two of the doctrines that were attacked the most, the most vigorously um, defended and argued for. And so some of the best um, arguments in literature that you can read regarding the dual nature of Christ and the Trinity can actually be found within those first several hundred years of the early church and how the fathers were forced to, to really crystallize their thoughts on these subjects and then be able to communicate them to defend heresies that were coming into the church and would have reduced the person and the work of Christ and would seek to undo the triune God and all of his glory. I mean, these guys fought and defended, and I praise God for, for these men that God used in that era. And we want to stand upon their shoulders as we, we think about these things this morning. Athanasius was one of those early church fathers, and upon him, considering the divine and the human nature come together in Christ, and then the work that Christ performed said this, the achievements of the Savior affected by his incarnation are of such a kind and number that if anyone should wish to expound upon them, he would, like, he would be like those who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. And when you begin to take a seat and to think about the expansiveness, the vastness, the immensity of the person of Christ, fully divine, fully human, and his work and his life and what he accomplished, death, burial, and resurrection, I mean, you would be better off trying to wrap your mind, instead of trying to wrap your mind around that, you'd be better off standing at the edge of the ocean and the expanse of it and trying to count the waves that came. That's how um, awe-inspiring and incredible this is. And that is what we want to talk about this morning. So you read with me in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We've read verses 1 and 2. Um, I'll read verse 2 again just to kind of bring verse 3 and 4 into it, um, which he promised, talking about being set apart for the gospel, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verses 3 and 4, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't get very far. I'm into verse 3 when he mentions that the gospel, which was promised beforehand, is concerning his son. And so we need to think about what does it mean when the scriptures talk about Jesus being the son of God? Because there are a lot of other religions out there that have an opinion and an answer for what the Bible means when it says son of God. And unfortunately, None of their answers and ideas match what the Bible actually says about Jesus and his being defined as the Son of God. 
As I said a few weeks ago, Paul begins the letter introducing himself, but quickly works his way out towards God, and God is really the one being emphasized and is the one that is doing all of the work. God is the initiator. He is the finisher of redemption. He is the first mover of all things. And so you consider the answer, you consider the question, what does it mean to be the son of God? And like I said, if you've ever had any experience with people from other religions, Muslims and Mormons, they all have an answer and an idea for what they believe the Bible to mean when it talks about the son of God, but it's not the Bible's meaning of what the Bible talks about when he, when it talks about the son of God. They see Jesus as being a human offspring of God. Another man, a wonderful man, a powerful man, a prophetic man, but not a divine man. And it's, that is exactly what the scriptures mean when it, refer, when it refers to Jesus as being the Son of God. It is a reference directly and specifically to his divine nature. To be the Son of God is to possess the one undivided essence of who God is. 100% divine. He never loses components of his, his, of his divinity, which is amazing and astounding when you get into studying things like theology proper and God and how theologians viewed God and, and his, his attributes, his immutability, his eternality, what we would call his impassibility, his aseity, his, his simplicity. Many of these doctrines regarding God and his essence are not commonly taught in, in many churches or even a lot of systematic theology these days. But if you go back in church history, these, the impassibility, the simplicity, the immutability, the independence or aseity of God, these were things that were talked about and studied a lot. And as you study these doctrines and you begin to import them into the, into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, all it does is continue to expand your understanding of who he is. And when our understanding of who he is is expanded, our worship of him should deepen. Anything that we can grasp about God and his person should put us in a position of awe and worship of who he is. And so that's why it's worth considering these things and studying these things in depth. We obviously don't have time this morning to get into all of those things, but to be, for Jesus, for Paul to claim that Jesus is the Son is for him to be saying, it's a shorthand way of saying, Jesus is God. He is divine in nature. Um, he is not... Um, the Son as one who was created. He is not the Son as one who is eternally subordinated to the Father, that they are one in essence. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. There's not a hierarchy within the triune Godhead. They are one in essence, eternally. Um, this is an, if you're, this word helps you, this is a conversation regarding ontology, the study of what something is at its essence. And Jesus is God divine ontologically in his essence of who he is. Jesus himself would say in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. There is a oneness. I mean, Paul here is saying that the Son is eternal. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus himself made these statements 
very, very clearly. I and the Father are one. He would go as far, so far as to say in John 14, 9, in his conversation with Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's how he, he, he communicated his divine nature to his people. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Again, I think um, the Athanasian Creed is helpful in this. He says, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, and yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we're not talking about three almighties, we're talking about one. What's important when we consider Christ's deity is really... Um, I think it's important to consider, I think, a mistake that we often do, that we often make, especially this time of year. It, what's important is that we don't read humanity back into the deity of Christ, which is what we tend to do, especially around Christmas time, because we're celebrating Christ come in the flesh. What we need to remember, though, and in helping keep our thinking straight, is to remember that Jesus didn't come into being. God didn't, that the Son of God, the Word, as John would say in 1-1, did not come into being in the manger. He had already eternally existed. And so for us to read humanity back into divinity, is, and oftentimes what happens is we stunt his divine nature, and we lose the awe, all of a sudden the manger scene doesn't really become all that awe-inspiring anymore because we see him as human first. First consider the Lord Jesus as divine, and then the manger scene blows you away. Why should this take place, and why should this happen? Well, the question is, why, you know, why would this take place? John 3.16, I think, does a good job of answering that question. Why did this take place? For God so loved the world that he gave, his only begotten son, the eternal son, divine in nature, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The manger scene is, is incredible because we're considering that the one who is divine and eternal and unchanging in nature came and dwelt among us as a man and still maintained all of his divine essence without losing any of it at this moment or at any moment and still continues to maintain it today. It's like what we sing in the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. This is this that song and this moment is incredible when you consider what is transpiring the one who created the materials that can be put together to make a manger, an animal trough, is the one who would find himself as a baby lying in it. 
but he's not only divine in nature, the Lord is not only divine, our Lord is also human, as Paul would go on to say. The gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, the gospel is about the Son. Jesus is the message of the gospel. And, and, and Christianity is unique in that way in that its founder, so to speak, continues to be the source and the message. You know, Islam, Muhammad is not the message of Islam. Joseph Smith is not the message of Mormonism, but Christ is the message of Christianity. It, it leads back to him as a person. The gospel is about him. The gospel is about the son being promised, the divine son, but also the human son. Here Paul picks up where he left off regarding the gospel being preserved in the Old Testament as we looked at last week. And even for a largely Gentile, Gentile church, the reference to David is applicable because Jesus isn't just the king. He's not the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the redeemed. He's, he's drawing their eyes to know that, for them to know that this King Jesus, the divine son, he's their king. He's the, he's the king of the redeemed. For every believer that would ever confess the, the, the lordship of Christ, be a part of the church, finds Jesus, the divine and human son, being their king. He's your king, and he's mine. And that has when you think about that, that has incredible implications as to then how I'm going to live my life on a day-to-day -day basis, right? The scriptures say that I've been bought by a price and that I belong to him. My life is not my own, that I am, I have a king and, and, and he is wonderful in every way, lovely and beautiful and compassionate and understanding and majestic and holy but he is still my king and he still deserves all of my reverence, all of my obedience, which I should, by the way, gladly and willingly give to him. We've said, said this before many times, that it, we should count citizenship in his kingdom as a tremendous privilege, not an obligation. It's a wonderful privilege for the believer to be a citizen in the kingdom of God and to have the Lord Jesus Christ as your king. And the reference to David helps to draw that out because who was the greatest king really to ever live in the scriptures besides the great King David? Not only did he rule um, with incredible victory, but the scriptures describe him as being a man after God's own heart. To have a king that was victorious and to have a king that had a heart after God. That would only set up what Jesus would be like. Our king. Only the one who has shown true victory as we'll see in verse 4. And has a true heart and always maintained a heart for the father. The promise um, that, Dave, that Paul is referring to concerning David actually is one that takes place back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you want to turn there, we'll see this. Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh. He has a human nature. And so while it is 
important for us to study and to meditate upon the divine nature of Christ, Scripture also clearly teaches us that he is human as well. And we'll, and we'll talk in a moment here about um, why and how that's good for us. But we see um, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God makes this promise and this covenant with David that a king is going to come after him who's going to have an eternal kingdom. Um, what's interesting in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that David is the one who wants to build a house for the Lord. And God quickly comes to him through um, the prophet Nathan and helps David gain a little perspective. David is like, I need to really build your house for you, Lord. And, and the Lord reminds David of all that it is that he has been doing. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, when you are about to die, God is saying, let's gain a little perspective here, David. As wonderful and as great as the things that you've done, remember who is the one that has done them. It is me, and I have done them from the beginning. And there's coming a day where you are going to die, and you will rest with your fathers in the grave. But I am God, and I am eternal. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 5, quotes 2 Samuel 7, 13 and saying that that has been fulfilled in Christ. All that it is that God is telling David he is going to do. David's like, Lord, I want to build you a house. I dwell in this huge, exquisite house. I want to build you one. And God is like, you can't. What, what would a house that you could build what would it look like and what could you possibly do for me? That I don't dwell in houses. The universe is where I dwell. I'm omnipresent. By the way, the earth is my footstool. I put my feet up on it occasionally. I mean, he's getting David to gain a little perspective here and how he has been the one that is sovereignly driving all this and that God has a promise and a plan in mind to redeem mankind and it is going to come through David and it is fulfilled in the person of Christ. Christ is descended from David according to the flesh. Not only that, but the promise that this would come through the line of David continues on in passages like Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. 
Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 say, behold, the days are coming. You know, the, the people of Israel are languishing away because of their own sinfulness, their own idolatry. Jerusalem is on the brink of utter destruction. And you want to see how incredible that destruction was, read through the book of Lamentations as Jeremiah walks through and sees the 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 bloody mess that is left behind. But there's this promise that continues on. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Continues to keep the promise going until he finally comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, the author of Hebrews would tell us how all this has come to pass in Jesus and then tells us why. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, talking about Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. God had promised that the Messiah, the Savior, would come, come through the line of David, and when he finally comes, he makes propitiation for the sins of his people. He receives. That word propitiation means he's receiving divine wrath upon himself, covering us, sheltering us. This is why so often the scriptures present God as being our refuge, our shelter, our strong tower, our fortress. It's the imagery of the propitiation of Christ, of being going and being found in him and being protected from the wrath of God as that wrath of God for our sin is fully poured out upon the divine human son. The son, Jesus Christ, in his humanity receives the fullness of the weight of of God's divine wrath upon himself. And because he does that, and he has received the wrath for us, his people, believers, you and me, do not have to. You think about... You think about the the contentment and the comfort and the joy that should come from knowing that you are hidden in Christ and that he came in the flesh. He came as a man and in his flesh received the fullness of divine wrath. Very painfully, but also he did so very intentionally so that you and I might have assurance, have our faith solidified in standing upon nothing but the work of Christ. You do not, you do not have one foot on him and then one foot upon your own goodness, your own good deeds. Had these conversations as I was flying home yesterday, sitting next to these two guys on the airplane, 
And of course, when I'm on an airplane, the conversation always comes up, hey, what do you do for a living? Pastor church. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm thinking about getting into religion. Okay. Yeah, I'm reading this book right now, the, the um, Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu, you know, book. I'm like, oh, okay, what are you learning? We need to have this conversation. And so eventually we get to the point where I'm like, well, you got to do something um, at the end of the day if you're looking at all of these religions and then the thing about Christianity um, is that, you know, we believe that in the resurrection and Christ rose from the dead. And you really have to be able to give an answer and a reason for the resurrection. Uh, and he just, the guy, so one guy's like in his late 50s, another kid's like 19. And the kid in between us is 19. He's just like, this is the best conversation I've ever been in. And I'm like, this is good. And the other guy, the guy who's in his late 50s, he's just like, yeah, well, about this. And so we end up talking about all of these, these things. And we end up talking about what I'm talking about. Well, he goes, well, what are you going to be teaching on tomorrow? And like the stuff we're talking about right now, Jesus being God in the flesh, rising from the grave, you know, things like that. And he's like, man, this is like great preparation time for you. And I'm like, yeah, it actually really is. I appreciate this. Thank you. You know, but I'm, try I'm trying to, 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 to say and to listen, okay, where are you, right? L let me understand where you are and what you're thinking about in your understanding of spirituality. And I'm going to try and bring you home into you've got to deal with Jesus Christ. And you've got to deal with the resurrection, and that is what it is in his humanity as he receives the wrath of God that really becomes the crux of the issue. Because if Jesus rises from the grave, and it really happens according to how the scriptures say it happened, then I believe everything else he said. Like, dead people don't come back from the dead on their own power. And this is what Jesus did, and what he claimed, and then he said, and Essentially, his message was, I'm going to die and rise, and when I do, it's going to prove that I am who I really am. And we'll get into this in, in really quick here in verse 4, as the resurrection being the, the declaration of Jesus' power. But you have to give an answer for the resurrection. And if he really rose from the grave, as he said he did, then I'm going to believe everything else that he said about himself in the Scripture, because nobody does what he did. And you've got to deal with that. You've got to wrestle with that. You've got to give an answer for the resurrection. And at that point, of course, the conversation kind of dies down, and then it goes off onto other topics. But I was reminded of the fact that, you know, we can talk about all of these things and try and prove the existence of God, and we can try and prove that Jesus was a real man. He was like, no, I really believe Jesus lived. I mean, how can you deny that Jesus was not a real man? I mean, he was. He really lived. His name continues on to this day. Number one selling book in all the world in history is the Bible. And I'm like, yeah, there's a reason for that. You've got to deal with the resurrection. G David, uh, Jesus has come as a descendant of David, full of glory, full of majesty, true divinity, born as a baby, and then would live expressing his kingly power 
as God said that he would, which brings us to our last point. We've seen that our Lord is divine. We've seen that our Lord is human. And now we see that our Lord is powerful. In verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God. Again, this term, Son of God, we've already talked about in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he puts a wonderful cap at the end of verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. He uses a term that um, in the Old Testament was used exclusively for Yahweh, lordship. And he wants you to know in verses 3 and 4 that beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is Lord. He is divine. He is God, though he is descended from David. And what he says before that in verse 4 is concerning this declaration of Jesus' divinity in power, or perhaps your, your translation says with power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The lordship of Christ, his deity, his power, his resurrection, they're all essential components to Paul's theology. And like I said earlier, they must be accounted for and taken into consideration. His resurrection. We talked to this guy about the, the virgin birth. And we talked about all these things. And they're essential components to the, the Christian's theology because they were essential components to the apostles' theology. And the reason why the resurrection is, must be accounted for and the reason why it's such a big deal is because it's actually said in the scriptures to be a work of the triune God. In Galatians 1.1, we see that the Father is, is said to um, resurrect Christ from the dead. In John 2.19, Jesus says that he's the one that resurrects himself from the dead. And then later on in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, we read that the Spirit is the one that raises Jesus from the dead. The triune God at work in the resurrection. Our Lord that is raised is powerful. The resurrection is something significant that happened. It's a public declaration. Now, like Paul would say here, he is declared to be the Son of God in or with power. The declaration that is made at the resurrection from the dead isn't that, okay, now that he's raised, he is finally the powerful one. The resurrection merely proved who Jesus claimed to be all along. He was always the powerful one. He was always divine. It's just that now after he rose from the dead, the declaration went public. We now see, you think about what Jesus did, his miracles, his teachings, everything. Well, I mean, for so long for, of his life, his greatness, his glory, his power was veiled, right? I mean, he was born in an animal trough for crying out loud. And that does not communicate greatness or power or glory or majesty. And all of his life was defined and described as being humble and gentle and lowly and, having, and coming from these circumstances. But yet, his power could always be seen through his, his miraculous works and his word. What did people say when they heard his word? This man teaches as one who has authority and power. His power had always been there, just veiled and concealed. 
being born in an animal trough and being crucified upon a cross in bloody agony does not communicate greatness or power, but oh, how the resurrection from the grave did. I love the song that we sing in Christ alone. And think about the resurrection, that glorious day. Christ emerges from the grave. The triune God at work, raising the divine son from the grave. And when that happened, a public declaration went forth as to say, this man is who he said he was. I and the Father are one. And if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And that declaration continues to go out. We declare his resurrection from the grave. You cannot talk about the gospel without talking about the resurrection. Declared to be the Son of God with power or in power. The reference of him being having power is a reference of him um, being who, that power being a part of who he always was. It's a reference to Christ's nature. He is the powerful Christ, and his victory over death proves this beyond a shadow of a doubt. And Paul would go on to say that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. Like we said, the resurrection is where we see his power most clearly put on display. So we want to consider in our last few minutes here together this morning, um, what does this mean? How does this become a point of practical application and thinking through in my life? How, how does having a better understanding or a greater appreciation for the fact that Jesus was fully divine and fully human, which, by the way, it's like we've just scratched the surface of this morning. How does that impact the way that I am going, the way that I live on a day-to-day basis? Because it should. And so I want to draw our attention really quickly here to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Knowing that Jesus is fully divine, fully human, and that he is filled with power affects the way that I view life. Paul would say this in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, as he's drawing the eyes of the believers in Ephesus to this, draws our eyes to it as well. He wants them to know several things, but one of them, beginning in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in us in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated us and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And he goes on from there. But he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The power that he worked in the resurrection. The power that Jesus exhibited and worked and showed the triune God had on display in the resurrection 
is the same power that is at work in your life and mine as a believer, which has incredible implications onto how I deal with my sin and view the struggles that I have with sin. In all of my struggle with sin and temptation, I need to remind myself that the power of God is actually working in my life. And when I consider what kind of power God has, I would find myself coming to the conclusion that I really lack zero resources in order to overcome the sin and temptation that is in my life. It is the very power of God that is working within me. Now, now this doesn't mean that we come to some sort of state of you know, sinless perfection in this life. We will always be plagued. But we should also know that the power of God is at work within us. The power of God is at work within husbands to be godly husbands, of dads to be godly dads, of wives to be godly wives, and moms to be godly moms, of friends to be godly friends. And whatever your vocation is for you to do that in a godly way, you know, you, your identity is not in your job. What you do for a living is not your identity. It's your platform to live out your identity, which is in Christ. And his power is at work within you to help you do it. He also helps us look at the way that we view death. And again, I think this is wonderful um, Athanasius would say this, of old, before the divine sojourn of the Savior, all used to weep for those dying as if they were perishing. But since the Savior's raising the body, no longer is death fearsome, but all believers in Christ tread on it as nothing and would rather choose to die than deny their faith in Christ. For they really know that when they die, they are not destroyed, but both live and become incorruptible through the resurrection. We, we, we are... In this culture, we are consumed with prolonging death and putting it off as long as possible. If it were up to us, the door of death would be completely removed. But it can't be, so we do all we can, right? We'll, we'll try and take the doorknob off the door of death from our side of it. And then we want to you know, frame out over it or wallpaper over it and pretend that it's not there. And we try and push it off as long as possible. The fact of the matter is, is that the doorknob to death is always there and it's open by the Lord and his sovereign timing. And every single one of us will walk through it. For the believer, we tramp, we, we run through that door of death with wonderful expectation of entering into glory and incorruptible resurrection. His power helps us think that way. And his power also helps the way that we view others. Um, quickly, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 18. 16 and um, 17, excuse me. From now on then, we therefore, know, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. I used to view Christ only according to the flesh, but I no longer see him that way. I now see him for who he truly is, and because I see him for who he truly is, I now no longer see any other person as just simply a physical body. I see them as being an eternal soul that is made in the image of God and going to spend their eternity in one of two places. And that motivates me to tell them the truth and the good news of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done and why he has come and what he's done in my life. We, as we prepare to take communion together, we want to be mindful of all these things. I think 2 Corinthians is a wonderful passage that helps us transition into the communion time because it's talking about how we now view Christ. When we partake of communion together, we do look at his physical body, his, his body and his blood that was shed that purchases our redemption, but we're thinking about the effects of that purchase, which is eternal life for us. And so this is a time of celebration. This is a time of worship. It's also a time of confession. It's also a time of examination as well. And do I, am, I, am I living according to the way that God would want me to with his power at work in my life as I think about Christ crucified for me and his power at work in my life. So this is a time for believers if you're visiting here today and you do know Christ by faith and by faith alone, then we do invite for you to partake of communion time with us. If you don't, then just to let the elements be where they are, but to consider Jesus Christ, his claims, and consider what, do you, what is your response to the resurrection from the grave. The elements are on the back tables. So you can get up and get those and return back to your seat for some time of prayer. And then we will partake of communion together here shortly.